0: I need a drink after that. Okay. So we are going to continue on in Titus today. That's where we've been for the last few weeks. And I am really excited this morning for our topic. I've got a couple questions for you that I'd love to hear your feedback on just to frame up our conversation this morning. So first of all, what comes to your mind When you hear the word leadership, what comes to your mind when you hear the word leadership? People, military, okay, good. Servant, strong personality, teams, responsibility, humility, leadership, apostle, okay. Parents, courage, empowerment, mission, abuse. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the words church leadership? vision, character, okay, shepherding, lots of hours, scandal, okay, above reproach, in need of grace, snobby, overworked, platform, professional, male. As I thought about those words myself this week, it was really striking to me, the contrast frankly as I'm hearing isn't quite quite as dramatic as it was in my own heart, but I thought about leadership, and almost everything I thought about when I only thought about the word leadership was, like, positive and good. But then when I put that other noun in front of the word leadership, church leadership, it shifted big time. And it was, it was a lot more negativity came into the picture for me. And as I sat with that and sat with just the words church leadership... I realize there is so much brokenness when it comes to this topic. So much brokenness. Now, I'm thankful, really thankful for any amount of grace that some of you have experienced that is evident with some of the words that are coming out this morning. That's that's awesome. Frankly, it's a little different than what I expected. I thought there might be more words like dishonesty or greed or abusive power, arrogance extreme unkindness, sexual immorality, financial impropriety. Some of these things came to my mind as I thought about church leadership. I mean, in my lifetime alone, there's been countless scandals with well-known church leaders that have involved all those things. And sometimes there's a leadership culture in the church where the people with the most power are not accountable to anybody. And so if they get confronted on something, they either push out the leaders who are confronting them or they just leave and sometimes go start a new thing. And then other times, church leaders are not submitted to the governing authorities. I hear more and more stories about this and it breaks my heart. I just met a new neighbor yesterday who has a story of church leadership where there was something sexual going on in the church that was against the law and they like, they hunkered down and said, no, we got to protect our own, we can't call the police, and finally someone came to their senses and did. But that happens a lot, and it's heartbreaking. And I just want to be clear, any time that we hear about these, these stories in the news, like, this is, this is abuse of power. I just want to call it what it is. It's broken, it's wrong, it's sinful. My church story as a child and as a young adult is bookended with broken church leadership. My dad became a pastor in 1981. I was six years old. It's his first church. He's all excited. He didn't grow up. I mean, he grew up in the Catholic church and then left the Catholic church and then found Jesus when he was 22, saved out of a horrible lifestyle, and went to Bible College Seminary, became a pastor, and so he's all excited for his first church leadership ministry experience, and within a year he was gone because the church leadership was so unhealthy. So that was my first church experience. That lasts a year. And then we move here, Uh, well, my wife and I, about 20 years later, move here, and we're part of a church where my father-in-law is the pastor and we're there for a year and then he gets basically run out of town for some horrible reasons. And so my life is like bookended in some ways with just really negative church leadership experiences. And as I thought about it, this topic of church leadership, because that's where the book of Titus has taken us next. At first I thought, oh, we're just going to walk into this topic. And then as I started meditating on it a little bit, I realized that probably every person in this room has some kind of scars or wounds or at least a negative view of church leadership in some way or another. Whether it's direct, like someone said something to you, someone did something to you, someone created a culture where you got seriously injured or more indirect, where you saw Jimmy Swaggart bawling his eyes out on TV, and you thought to yourself, man, if that's what church leadership's all about. And I realized the Swaggart reference dates me significantly. Half of you are like, who the heck is that guy? Sorry, look it up on YouTube. And even here in our own church, we've only been around 13 years, and last fall, the elders stood up here and repented for a long list of areas where we have failed significantly. Areas like pride, worshiping a method of making disciples, valuing competence over character, too much change, lack of follow-through, broken communication, undervaluing children, undervaluing women. That's just a part of the list. And I just want to say, we, your, your, your current four elders, we say those things are wrong. We repent. Those are idols, we want to tear them down and we want to walk out the fruit of keeping with repentance. Just again I want to say no to those things. And then there's the whole issue of like all the different denominations, you know there's like 400 denominations just in Tacoma, it's crazy, no sorry there's 400 churches but there's like 80 denominations, back when we used the yellow pages. I literally flipped through and counted because they organized them according to denomination. There's still 80 in Tacoma. And churches like the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopal Church, the Congregational Church, their names were chosen to directly reflect their view of church leadership. So, church leadership has been a key issue for dividing the Church of Jesus Christ up into all these different denominations. It's like one of the main theological areas of disagreement. So I start walking into this this week. I'm like, whoa, what a mess. What a mess. This is going to be really hard. People are skeptical of church leadership, and I'm going to get up here and try to talk about elders in this awesome office. So, which I'm still going to do. Because it's in God's word, right? And the brokenness of the world around us does not let us off the hook from trying to make sense of what the Bible says all right? We live in a sexually broken culture, but when sex comes up in the Bible, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to say, you know what? It's not right to have sex before you get married. I know. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't care. The Bible says it. We've got to keep saying it, even if it doesn't make sense in a broken culture. So our church leadership culture is broken? That's heartbreaking. Let's still talk about the Bible's view of church leadership. But before we do, which we're going to spend the next three weeks doing, Titus 1, Verses 5 through 9, I want to say this right away, because this picture we're starting with is pretty bleak. I want to say that Jesus is our only perfect leader. He's the only perfect leader we have. He's the only one who will ever lead you perfectly. The only one. Only in Jesus do we have a perfect example of leadership and a perfect experience of leadership you can step back and look at jesus life and go wow he was a great leader but then it's a whole nother thing to feel him lead you and we need both our hope for experiencing good leadership can only be found in jesus and i want to say this because i want to just dispel any silly notion that maybe somehow if soma could get leadership right then people wouldn't get hurt anymore. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I say that with a broken heart. Not to like say, oh, you know what? We're going to screw up, so if we do, don't blame me. I told you we were going to mess up. That's not why I say it. I say it to just sober us and say, wow. Humans are never going to get it right. So if you're putting your faith in humans, you're going to be let down. But the great news is you have the perfect human, Jesus Christ, who's with you all the time, who will lead you perfectly, who will lead our church perfectly. So we're, we're standing on that bedrock. Now my hunch is there's many of you here who have very little, if any, idea of what it looks like and feels like for Jesus to lead you. But I just want to remind us of a few verses from my favorite psalm that I pray almost daily. You lead me beside quiet waters. You restore my soul. You guide me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Jesus is a good shepherd who wants to lead you, restore your soul, and guide you. That's great leadership. That's great leadership. And it's available to every one of you. And I'm praying that today we would all grow a little bit in our understanding of what it means to have Jesus as our leader. So, church leadership is our topic. Let's talk first about a biblical view of leadership at a high level, and then we'll delve down into church leadership specifically. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. You can turn there if you want in your Bibles. It's gonna be on the screen as well, and sooner or later we're gonna make it to Titus, but we're gonna start in Mark chapter 10, probably my favorite passage in the Bible on the topic of leadership. The context is James and John, two of Jesus' buddies, his disciples, men whom he's going to entrust with lots of responsibility. They're known as the sons of thunder. They must have had quite a presence. And yet they send their, I always imagine her as a little old lady. We don't know that. But they send their mom to Jesus, and they put their mom up to it. And their mom says, hey, uh, Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, can my boys over here, who I always envision like standing back there with their heads down like kicking the dirt, hey, can my boys, um, can they have like the really, really good positions of authority when you set up your kingdom? Like your right and your left would be really awesome. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus called them to him and said to them, this is all of his disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, which means they throw their weight around. And they're great ones Exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. He's completely flipping upside down their understanding of leadership. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's a bunch of good stuff going on here, okay? First, what Jesus is saying is that the world pursues greatness. The world pursues significance. The world pursues an identity through the acquisition of positional leadership. The world says, if you can get a position of leadership, that will make you great. That's what the world says. The emphasis is on power. And the emphasis is on leadership from above. In this kind of leadership, all of what you exert and exercise, the influence that you exercise, is power-based. And the people you lead are under you. It's hierarchical, okay? Even as I'm describing it, you're probably thinking of examples because our world is filled with them. The corporate world works this way. The military works this way, okay? Positional leadership is what gives me significance. But Jesus flips it upside down, and he says, I want to give you a very different paradigm for understanding leadership. And this is servant leadership. Not positional leadership, servant leadership. See, in Jesus' kingdom, greatness and significance comes through your connection to the king. We think significance and greatness comes through the position that we have, but in Jesus' kingdom, He says significance and greatness comes through being connected to the one with the highest position. Because guess what? Your heart wants greatness. You were made for greatness. There's actually greatness in you. You're an image bearer of God. So the desire to be significant and be great, that's not the problem. The problem is how do you get there? And if you're trying to grasp and grab And acquire, in order to be great, instead of saying, I'm in a relationship with the truly great one. I'm connected to him, that's what makes me great. That's the big deal. So here's what's crazy about this paradigm flip of positional leadership to servant leadership. All of you get to be leaders. You all get to be leaders. See, John uh, Maxwell defines leadership with one word. He defines it with one word, influence. Leadership is influence. And here's the thing, both models, positional leadership and servant leadership, the people who who fill those positions, both of them have a ton of influence. They have a ton of influence. People with positional leadership, their influence comes through their power and I can influence a situation or a group of people even against their will because I have so much power. That's influence. But servant leadership, guess what the currency of servant leadership is? It's not power, it's trust. It's trust. When you serve people, they'll trust you. They'll trust you. And then how much influence do you have? you have tons. You have tons of influence. And now you're not influencing people against their will. Now you're actually wooing them. You're leading with them, not over them. You're leading amongst them and even under them as a servant, and you're building trust. How many of you have influence in the life of another person? Keep going, because every hand should be up. Every hand should be up. You all have influence in the life of another person. The question is, how are you leveraging that influence? What are you influencing people to? What are you leading them to? You're a leader, You are a leader. Leadership is for everyone. But the question is where are you leading people? You're leading them somewhere. Now, we all have different scopes of influence, okay? Some of us it's a little handful, some of us it's more than a handful. But you're all leaders. You are influencing someone. I would encourage you, before the day is over, think about who do I influence most? For good or not good? Who am I influencing? There's people on your list. But if you want to influence people through servanthood towards Jesus, then guess what has to be true for you? He has to be your greatest influence. Because you can't lead someone to a place you've never been. You can't walk them down a path you don't know. So who's influencing you? Who's leading you? The answer to that question will directly impact where you're influencing people to go. So Jesus is not throwing out positional leadership altogether. This is key to get this. He's not saying the structures that set up positional leadership are wrong and bad. He's actually not saying that. In fact, in the very passage, what does he do? He calls himself the son of man. Randy talked last week about this title that Jesus uses for himself, one of the most frequent titles that Jesus uses. It's a reference from Daniel's prophecy. And Jesus probably couldn't have picked a title unless he used the word Yahweh. He probably couldn't have picked a title that more clearly was like, bro, I have positional authority here. I'm the son of man. He calls himself the son of man in this passage where he's talking about servant leadership. So he's not throwing out position. He still is the king of kings, the lord of lords, the son of man, the one who has all authority. He's not throwing out authority structure. Elsewhere in the Bible, we get things like honor your father and mother because this is the first commandment with a promise. Jesus didn't throw out the Ten Commandments. He didn't say, parents, it's wrong for you to exercise authority over your children. So positional leadership is not wrong. The question is, what's motivating the people in the positions of authority? That's the question. That's the question. And if we're in a position of leadership and authority and we lead only from power, and not from servanthood and trust, then we get called a dictator. Rightly so. Rightly so. And that's one extreme of leadership that Jesus is teaching against here in this passage. Dictatorial leadership. There is another extreme that I have to mention, that's not in this passage, but it is in the Bible, and that's abdication. That's abdication. So on the one hand, you can be a dictator, and use your power and your position and your authority to overlord, and to abuse people. And on the other hand, you can be an abdicator who says what? It's not my job description. It's not my job. Someone else is going to have to take care of that. And they never step into anything. They never initiate anything. They don't take responsibility for anything. That's abdication. And it started all the way back in the garden with Adam. When Satan came to tempt Eve... A walking, talking snake comes and tells lies to your wife, and you don't bother to say anything? That's abdication. And our world is filled with both. Our world is filled with both. Personally, I think that the second is especially epidemic here in the Northwest. We are so passive. We're so passive man, someone else will take care of that, someone else's job, man. I don't want to say anything. It's not my place. I don't want to call somebody out. We're so passive. And the Bible says, you know what? I don't want you to be a dictator. I don't want you to be an abdicator. I want you to be a servant leader. And the greatest example of that, of course, is Jesus Christ. We cannot talk about servant leadership without going to Philippians chapter 2. I actually wrestled with it this morning. The Spirit was like, you got to go there. I said, okay, I'm going. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is a mind of humility, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, the translation I memorized was he existed in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word actually means held on to. Grasped, to me, implies... Yet he didn't have equality with God and he wanted to grasp after it. That's not the case. The picture is Jesus held equality with God. Though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his equality with God when he became a man. He submitted the independent exercise of his attributes to the Father and the Spirit. He emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Jesus Christ was and is the greatest leader who ever lived. Because if anybody ever had the right to be a dictator, it's Jesus. He has the right to lead you against your will. He has the right to do that but he doesn't. He doesn't. He comes and he humbly serves you all the way to laying down his life for you and saying this is what leadership looks like. This is what leadership looks like. It doesn't look high and exalted. It looks like death for other people. You see, you've got to have Jesus not just as your example, but as your experience of leadership if you're going to lead others. Now let's talk about a biblical view of the church. This will be much shorter because I just want to review, talk a lot about the church. Just some quick hits here, but this is clutch if we're going to get church leadership right. We have to remember these basics about the church. So just bullet points real quick. Church belongs to Jesus. Titus 2.14, we are a people for his own possession. Ephesians 5, the church is Jesus' bride. 1 Peter 5 says that Jesus is the chief shepherd, so the church is led by Jesus. The church is Jesus' family. Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. The church is Jesus' family of servants. The church is Jesus' family of missionaries. John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. The church has been sent and empowered by Jesus to fulfill Jesus' mission. And finally, the church exists for the glory and praise of Jesus' grace. Do you notice the theme there? It's all about Jesus. So anyone who wants to lead in the church of Jesus Christ has got to understand that this is Jesus' church. We are Jesus' people. We are pursuing Jesus' agenda. In Titus 1-7, elders are called God's stewards. A steward is a manager. You get given somebody's stuff, and that person who owns the stuff says, take good care of my stuff. It's not your stuff. It's still my stuff, but I trust you to manage it. That's a steward. That's a steward. That's what elders are. So any church leader who starts to go, this is my church. These are my people. This is my vision. This is my agenda. We've missed it. We've missed it. And I think that is actually the beginning of how leaders often end up in the ditch. They start to forget That it's Jesus' church, Jesus' agenda, Jesus' mission, Jesus' glory. So, the Bible gives us two biblical offices. Though everyone leads, everyone influences, Jesus also didn't tear down the idea of positional leadership. We have servant leadership, but in the church, he says, you know what? I am going to have a couple positions. Okay, that's... That's why it's important to understand positional leadership's not bad. We're not throwing out parents, we're not throwing out governing authorities, we're not throwing out positions of leadership in the church. It's not wrong to have those. But they need to lead as servants. So there's two biblical offices. First is deacon. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on deacon today, because it's not in Titus, but I will just say 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives us the qualifications for deacon. Romans chapter 16, verse 1, I believe, is a reference to a deacon who served in the church. We believe from those two passages, deacons, first of all, the word means servant. So these are people who serve the church with great vigor through the gift of serving, okay? And often they'll lead others in serving as well, but serving is the main theme of what it means to be a deacon. The qualifications are similar to elder, but a little bit different. It's, it's all character. You gotta hold fast to the faithful word. You have to be sober-minded, patient, Okay? Not a person who's given to drunkenness. These are some of the qualifications. We believe that this office is open to both men and women. Right now, we have men and women in our church who serve as deacons. Okay? And by God's grace, we hope to appoint some more in the near future. The other office that we'll spend the rest of our time on is elder. I want to put up a definition for elder up here on the screen. After praying and reading and Searching the scriptures for the last two weeks. Uh, I, I just came up with this, actually. Here's what we've got. I'm going to teach through each, not teach through. I'm going to give you some scripture for each one of the points and say a few brief comments. Elders are a plurality of qualified men who are able to bear the responsibility of the office, who are appointed by the Holy Spirit, to whom the church is to submit, and who are accountable to one another, and to the church. So There's a lot there. I'm going to move through it fairly quickly. If you're not in Titus yet, look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We've gotten through the introduction. Tons of great gospel stuff. Reminded of the grace and peace of God our Father and Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord and God. And then Paul says, okay, let's get down to business. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then skip to verse 7. For an overseer, so different word there, sometimes translated bishop, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And on and on, the qualifications go. Which we'll get to next week so first of all the bible uses two different words to describe this biblical office of elder it uses the word elder and it uses the word overseer you can find these words equated in acts chapter 20 okay where clearly the two words apply to the same office and also here in titus chapter one clearly the two words apply to the same office. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, this same word, overseer, is applied to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is called an elder in the church. He is our perfect elder. From here in Titus, where Paul says, appoint elders in every town if we checked Philippians chapter one and Acts twenty seventeen, we would find that the vision in the scripture for elders is that there be a plurality—that is, multiple elders in each church family. Okay, plurality of elders in each church family. That's what we believe. That's what we've always practiced as Soma Tacoma, and by God's grace, that's what we want to continue to practice. Not only did we repent of a bunch of wounds last fall, but we also talked about some blessings of the history of our church family. And one that we heard many of you mention was a plurality of elders under Jesus, the senior pastor. So at Soma Tacoma, there there will never be a senior pastor because Jesus is the senior pastor. 1 Peter 5 calls him the chief shepherd. Those words could be translated senior pastor. Okay? So he is called the senior pastor in the scriptures. So if you have one senior pastor, that implies that that elder is above the other elders. And we're saying, no, the scriptures seem to say that elders are are equal in terms of their authority. They have different responsibilities, but they're equal in terms of their authority. So that's how we understand the scriptures. Okay, plurality of qualified men. The qualifications for elders are found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, a couple pages back from where we're at, and also here in Titus chapter 1. Both passages make it clear that the office of elder is reserved for men. Now, today, we're not gonna spend time on that because Titus chapter two has a lot to say about the roles of men and women, and we will spend time talking about that when we get there. So I know it's a little interesting to just sort of like throw that out and then not really address it. I felt like I couldn't take a ton of time to do that today. I'll maybe say a little bit more about it next week when we talk about qualifications. But in terms of our convictions, that's where we're at. That's where we've always been. And we believe that we have really good biblical reason for that. And having said that, we also repented last fall of undervaluing women. And so we want to continue to explore what does it look like for us to lead together while affirming this biblical office of elder. Okay? Elders are able to bear the responsibility of the office. Mark Tilden, one of our elders, is going to teach on this in two weeks. What are the responsibilities of an elder? So I'll leave that for him. Elders are appointed by the Holy Spirit. Here in Titus 1.5, Paul says to Titus, appoint elders. So that seems to be a human thing. Acts 14.23, Paul and uh, Barnabas When they had appointed elders for them in every church, this is in the first group of churches that they planted. So here Paul and Barnabas are appointing elders. That's curious too. Seems like a human thing. But then in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul says to the elders of Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So here's my take. The Holy Spirit is the one who's sovereign and in control and in charge of the process of appointing elders. But he uses humans to do that. And in the scriptures, we see him using leaders to do that in, in harmony with the local church. Okay, these people are not just thrust upon the local church, Okay. So he's using human institution of leadership to appoint these elders, but it is very much a Holy Spirit work. And through the history of Soma, when elders have been appointed, it's been very much a prayerful, slow process, sometimes too slow. We've talked with the family. We've gotten lots of input. So that's what we believe the process is. All right, next phrase. To whom the church is to submit, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So those of us who've been hurt by church leadership, keep in mind the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Some of us today might be sitting here still with wounds and bitterness, and hurt, and unforgiveness, and even a desire to punish other leaders who've let us down. But keep in mind here, the call to submit to your leaders, like, they're going to be held accountable as ones who are keeping watch over your soul. So to the degree that leaders who you've been under have failed, they will be held accountable. That is super sobering for me, personally. As a guy who's been an elder now for 16 years, super sobering and makes me, like, get on my face and say, Jesus, please forgive me, and if there's anybody I need to go talk to and look in the eye and say, I'm so sorry for the way that we failed you, the way that I failed you. Please let me know. I just sent an email like that two or three weeks ago to somebody. Hey, Spirit's prompting me. I need to apologize. I'm so sorry. Let's talk to me. Like, please forgive me. And then finally, who are accountable to one another and to the church. I'm going to read this passage, it's the last passage we're going to look at, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. This is a gigantic passage when it comes to leadership, and I especially want you to, to listen carefully if you've got significant wounds or if you know stories of guys who pushed out other leaders who tried to hold them accountable Or when they were held accountable, they just bolted. Like, listen to what this passage says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Those two verses, by the way, are a biblical basis for having paid elders, which we do. In this church family, we have two paid elders, and this is one of the passages we point to to say, see, the scriptures teach that not only can you, but you should, if it makes sense, pay certain elders to do certain work to serve the church family, okay? So practically, that's a reason to give to your church family that I think the Bible teaches. Next, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, which, by the way, was the bare minimum standard for any legal proceeding in the Old Testament. So it's not like elders are getting special treatment. Like, oh, if you're talking about an elder, you got to have some witnesses. It's like, no, no, no. In the Old Testament, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything unless you had two or three witnesses. So he's just reminding them of that. As for those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all, and I think he means the church, so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. He's like, I'm calling the whole court of heaven to bear witness on this. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Don't give the elders special treatment. Don't overlook their sin. They must be held accountable is what this passage is saying. And if they screw up, if they sin and they're unrepentant or they sin massively, rebuke them in the presence of the whole church so that the whole church sees, wow, even our elders or maybe it's especially our elders are held accountable. I want to be held accountable too. Or maybe it's oh no, I'm going to be held accountable too. Now I don't know about you, but that is a pretty different picture from how I've seen church leadership work a lot of times. By God's grace, I do believe He has allowed us to walk in a little bit of a different way as Soma Tacoma. I want to just say your elders are open to rebuke. We are open to correction. We want to hear if you think we're screwing up, If we're messing up, is it hard for us to hear? Absolutely. Do we need to go to Jesus and pray when we get the hard emails? Absolutely we do, but we want them because we're accountable to the church, okay? It's not the elders doing whatever they want and you guys just have to live with it. That's not how this works. We've gotten emails about serving teams that were going haywire. We've gotten questions about how we do communion. We've had lots of conversations about our failure to take care of kids and honor women. like People have brought us stuff over the years, and I hope, by God's grace, we've been receptive. Also, in the last two years, you had two of your elders go take a leave of absence with no return guaranteed. I was one of them. Because my other elders came to me and said, we think you need to do this. And Mark was the other one. And we had another elder not preach for like six or seven months because the elder said, we don't think you should do this. So by God's grace, there is a mutual submission here. It's not perfect. And Jesus is our only help. But I do want to say, be encouraged. Be encouraged that your elders listen to one another. And we don't say, well, that's what you think. I don't care what you think. We say, no, I want to hear what you have to say. So I want to end... By calling us all to servant leadership. Because though Jesus has called some to be deacons and some to be elders, he's called all people with the spirit of God to be leaders. And so I want you to think through your spheres of influence. Think about work. Think about your neighborhood. Think about your friendships. Think about the place you live the home, the apartment, your housemates. Think about your spouse. Think about your children. Think about your your missional community, the people that you're trying to make disciples with. Think about our church family. Think about our city. There are so many opportunities for you to influence other people. And so my charge to us as a family today is follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. He's the leader. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Follow me as I follow Christ. Every Christian can say that to somebody else. Follow me as I follow Christ. He's my leader. I'll be a leader for you. I'll point you to him. I'm following him. You can follow me as I follow him. Follow Jesus. Read the Bible. Pray. Tell people about Jesus. Listen. Sit with him in silence. Ask the spirit questions. Follow Jesus. That's number one. Number two... Pour into someone else. Pour into someone else. If you know one thing about Jesus, you can meet with somebody else on a regular basis and teach them that one thing over and over again. There is somebody out there, somebody out there who wants someone to meet with them and pour into their life. This school is filled with them. Tacoma School of the Arts is filled with them. I have teachers come to me from both of those schools and say, can you send us people who are mentor students and they know I'm a pastor, they know I'm a Christian, they know I'm going to talk about Jesus. Public school, they don't care because they're dying for people to spend time with kids who don't have anybody other than their teachers who are doing the best they can to spend time with them in normal life. You can pour into someone and nothing will grow you faster than trying to lead somebody else. Finally wanna end by challenging the men in our church. Everyone is called to lead. Everyone is called to serve. But I especially wanna challenge you men. I especially wanna challenge you men. Lay down your lives for other people. Your best life now, starts when you take up your cross. That's your best life now, dying to yourself, serving other people is the way to go. And listen, I challenge you men because historically, men have rolled as dictators. And it has done so much damage. And now the culture is telling us that the solution is to abdicate and both are broken. Both are broken. And the scriptures say, do not abdicate, but be a servant leader who lays down your life, who leans in. Don't lean back. Lean in. Initiate. Lead. There's so many opportunities. Especially those of you who are married and with children. Man, you've got people in your house who are depending on you to lay down your life for them. Is it hard? It's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Every night I think I would rather do something else than empty the dishwasher or, you know, do these all these things for my children. But you know what? I do it. Jesus is present with me and he gives me so much joy. And by the end, I say, there's nothing I'd rather do. What am I going to do? Watch TV? I love serving my family. I love serving my family. So, Jesus Christ is our example. He's our experience. And finally, he's our empowerment. Because none of us can do this without Jesus Christ living in us and the Holy Spirit giving us all the energy and strength to do it. I don't want to sound like a moralist. I don't want to give you a job that's too, too heavy for you to do. The Spirit of God is alive in you. The Spirit of God is alive in you. Respond to Him and His initiation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You so much. You left heaven, came to earth, And ended up in the garden on your face, sweating blood, knowing what it meant for you to take up your cross. Jesus, you're such a good leader. You're such a good leader. Lead us now. Lead us now. Please, thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, Jesus. we come and take communion, we are reminded of the great sacrifice that you've made for us. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are present in each person here. You are our leader if we have faith in you. And if there's anyone who doesn't know you, I pray that they would examine that Philippians 2 passage where you became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to forgive every person in the world of their sin. And Jesus, as we come to the table, if there's any healing you want to do in our hearts, if there's any forgiveness you want to call us to for past leadership, please do that work in these moments. Please do that work in these moments. This morning as we were praying, you led me to forgive the leaders of my father's first church and my father-in-law's last church. I realized... I don't know if I'd ever done that. Thank you, Jesus, that you've forgiven every leader who's hurt any. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.